Well, friends, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 90 for the next bit of our time together. We're going to walk verse by verse through this incredible psalm uh, as part of what is a four-week little mini-series for us in the month of June, using some of the psalms to carry on with themes we began to consider back in the spring in the book of Genesis, the theme of, of what it means to be human. There are many subjects more practical for your life than this one. Last week I talked about the fact that if you're taking a cross-country road trip, you need to know your vehicle. You need to know what instruments you got in there to work with. You need to know what kind of fuel you run on. You need to know what kind of seating capacity you have. You need to know how much that pickup speed uh, can, can give you when you really need it. You need to know what the turn radius is. You need to know what you're driving. And your life is a kind of journey. To navigate it well, you need to know you. And what we've been saying so far is that the most important things to know about you are not those things that set you apart from everybody else, but those things that drive you back to God. Those things about you that drive you back to God in worship, in dependence, in, in gratitude, and obedience. We said last week, true self-knowledge that's rooted in, in, in the truth about the world and the way it works it's always self-knowledge that begins and ends in the worship of God. That's what we've said so far. And now, our psalm this morning takes us into a curious but universal part of our experience as humans. A, a part of our experience that you've got to be able to explain, but that doesn't immediately make much sense to us. We humans live our lives trapped in time. We're surrounded by change, aren't we? Everything changes. We're caught up in it, whether we want to be or not. Everything's just always changing. And that's as basic a human experience as eating and sleeping. The, the, the curious part about this experience is that we're not okay with it. That we seem to always be surprised by it. And when we notice it, often not to like it. Uh, we, we can't deny it. We can't stop it. But we still aren't reconciled to it. In his book on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis talks about this curious quirk of ours. He says, we move through life from beginning to end with a kind of aching wound that, that hurts us as much when we're happy as when we're unhappy. Knowing that this thing that's making us happy isn't going to be ours forever. The knowledge that things are changing, that, that nothing lasts. He says, we're so little reconciled to it as to be astonished by it. We say, look how he's grown when we see a kid that we haven't seen in a while. We're shocked. We say, whoa, that was over fast. Man, that flew by. We say, time flies. But with an exclamation point and, and almost a hidden question mark, what's happening? This, this reality is as basic and universal as anything else in our experience, but we experience it, Lewis says, like it's new, like it's, like it's shocking, like it comes to us out of nowhere. He says, this is a quote, It's as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the wetness of water. <laughs> What's that about? Have you ever thought about it? If you want to understand what it means to be you, you need to understand that your life is trapped in time and you need to understand why you're not okay with it so that then you can understand what can be done about it. Even more, you need to know what can be done about it. 
And Psalm 90 gives us the perspective we need. Much like Psalm 8 that we looked at last week, Psalm 90 begins and ends with truth about God. Much like Psalm 8 last week, in between these truths about God is a huge section about us. What's true about humanity? Like Psalm 8, Psalm 90 is basically just a commentary on the early parts of Genesis that we looked at together in the spring. It's clear that Genesis is behind this, the poem, the song that's written here. But where Psalm number 8 that we looked at last week, where it focuses on the truth of Genesis 1 and 2, humanity as created, humanity as made in the image of God, humanity as crowned with glory and honor, Humanity has given good work, God's own work, to do on God's behalf in God's name. Where, where Psalm 8 sings about Genesis 1 and 2, Psalm 90 sings about Genesis 3. A beautiful world corrupted by sin, dignified and wonderful lives marred by change and, and ultimately death. But for all the differences between Psalm 8 on where we come from and Psalm 90 on where we're going, for all these differences, these two psalms, they're written with exactly the same purpose. They're written to send us back into the steadfast love of the Lord. To look at God so that we can see ourselves. To look at ourselves so we can go running back to God with dependence and worship as our only hope. This is a psalm, in other words, to tell us, to convince us that the only home we have in this world is the steadfast love of the Lord. You can't rest anywhere else. And by God's grace, you don't have to. I want to read the psalm to you before we walk through it together verse by verse. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in Psalm 90 verse 1 and read to the end of the psalm. This, friends, is the word of the Lord. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? 
and your wrath according to the fear of you. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. To get the point of this psalm, you have to get two contrasts that this psalm pitches your way. Two contrasts at the heart of the psalm. First, a contrast between God and ourselves. That's where we'll begin. And then the contrast between two ways to live. That's where we'll end. Contrast one is the, the difference between God and ourselves. That's the first two-thirds of the psalm. Contrast two are two ways to live in response to the truth. Let's begin with contrast number one. The psalmist paints a picture for us beginning with God in verse two. This is a picture that says to us, God, he's not like anything else in our experience. God just is. He has no beginning. He has no end. Verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you'd formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you're God. God just is. And that's really hard for us to understand. It's not something we can relate to, because everything else we know about the world has a beginning. Everything else we know changes over time. It either gets better or it gets worse, but it always changes. Because God is so hard to understand, because he's so different from us, the Psalms love to compare him to things that we can understand. And that's what the psalmist is doing in, in verse 2. Think of the psalmist as, as kind of scouring his brain, all that he's seen, all that he's experienced, for the, the, what's the oldest, the most permanent, the most immovable object he can think of. What is it that seems like it's just been around forever? What never changes, no matter the season? I got it. Mountains. God's like a mountain. But no, that, that, that doesn't work. It's, it's, it's more than that. With God, the mountains are the new kids on the block. Before the mountains were born, he says. Before they were brought forth as out of a womb. But before the world on which the mountains rest was even formed. All right, that's as far as I can take it. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Even the mountains had a beginning. And even the mountains only live in this world, as part of this world. God is not like that. God's life is necessary. He is who he is. He just is. That's the point of verse 2. And it's given to us to set up the truth about us, which comes in verses 3 to 6, and even, and even following those verses. Really, from verse 3 all the way to verse 10, the psalmist is driving home the truth about us in one image after another. In verses 3 to 6, it's a, a bunch more images from nature to paint a picture that's as hard to look at, honestly, as it is to deny. Walk with me through these verses. Look down. Verse 3. Where God is God before the mountains, from everlasting to everlasting. What? Our lives? 
They're made up of dust. Is there anything heavier than a mountain? Anything more weightless than a speck of dust? Anything bigger than the mountains? Is there anything smaller in our experience and what we can see? A speck of dust? And God just is and is and is from everlasting to everlasting. But, but we, verse 3 says, well, we end up exactly where we started. We begin as dust and we return to dust. Friends, that's the message of Genesis 3. We had a whole sermon on this that I would refer you to on the website if you want to go further. A whole sermon on this. It's an ugly truth, a hard truth, but an undeniable truth. God just is. We come and go. Verse 4 continues to layer on these images. God is outside of time. With him, a thousand years is, is like yesterday when it's past. It's like a, like a night shift. I can't even get my mind around a thousand years. You know, once it's been more than a couple hundred, it all just runs together. Was it 500 years ago, 700 years? I don't, I don't know. It just all runs together. With God, it, it may as well have been a night shift. He's outside of time. But, 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 but us, we're trapped in it like slaves. We can't escape it. That's verses 5 and 6. One image after another in these verses to drive home how fragile and temporary our lives really are. He says that our lives are swept away as with a flood. You ever seen a river in flood stage? You don't want to mess with it. And you'd be foolish to think you could swim against it. We don't swim against the river that is time. And it only moves in one, one direction. We're swept away like a flood. Our lives, he, he carries on, are, are kind of like a dream. Shadowy. Almost unreal. Difficult to get your hands around. Do you remember what you dreamed about? Probably what you know is that you did dream, but then it was over. Like that. And gone. Or, or, or adding to it, our lives are actually like grass. Verse 5. Renewed in the morning. Looks great. Tall Middle Tennessee fescue grass is amazing in, on, on a nice spring morning. But what happens by late in the day, in mid-June, it'll crunch under your feet. It withers and it fades. That's what he's saying in verse 6. In the morning it flourishes, in the evening it fades and withers. God is more everlasting than the mountains. We're as fragile as a blade of grass. We're as light as a speck of dust. We're as fleeting as a dream. That's the point. I think it's pretty clear. So let me ask you two questions. Two questions for you. Does it sound familiar to you yet? Have you noticed that this is true about your life? Have you been paying attention? A few years ago, I read a really wonderful memoir by a writer named Helen McDonald, a book called H is for Hawk. Highly recommended, especially if you like quirky books. This one's really quirky. It's it's, it's part nature study about hawks and what they like to eat and how you can train them to hunt. It's part story about an old English author who also loved to hunt with falcons or hawks and wrote about the legend of King Arthur. And then along the way, it's also a very personal story about one woman whose whole world changed when her father died. 
as a young woman whose life was still growing, was still being established, whose life felt more and more substantive to her with each passing day, came to see her whole life in a totally different lens when she lost the father that meant so much to her. She tells this story along the way in the memoir. She was a rising star in training at Cambridge University. She was learning to be a writer. She was succeeding in all the places that every writer would want to succeed. Her life to that point seemed like it was on the rise. You know, like with each passing day, with each new accomplishment, it added some heft. Her life felt like a mountain with a base that was just getting broader and broader, more and more secure, and now starting to climb. She talks about being part of the the ancient traditions of the university, all of it like, like plugging her life into something that matters, something that would give her more and more heft and stability. And who doesn't want a life that feels and looks like a mountain? But when her father got sick and died, when that rocked her world, she describes it as, as like putting on a new set of lenses for looking at all the same things. Everything looked different now. His death brought up what she called bouts of derealization. Strange episodes where the world became unrecognizable. And the image that she uses to describe what she felt, it, it's to me it's just an amazing and powerful image for what Psalm 90 is trying to communicate to us. She said what she realized was that instead of, of her life building up like a mountain that just gets stronger and stronger and stronger over time, that her life was more like Alice falling through the looking glass into Wonderland. When Alice dropped down the rabbit hole, she said, into Wonderland, she fell so slowly she could take things from the cupboards and the bookshelves on the walls. She could look curiously at the maps and pictures that passed her by. She was able to interact with it, but she was always falling, and she had to put them back. Helen saw that that was her life. She wasn't building up anything. She was simply looking for a little while as she fell. All these precious places, all these amazing experiences, all these accolades and accomplishments she was piling up, all of it now after the loss of her father, after confronting how fragile and temporary life is. Now she saw, this is a quote, I'd always been falling as I moved past these things. I could reach out and touch them. I could pick them off their shelves and replace them. But they were not mine. Not really, ever, mine. She'd learned the wisdom of Psalm 90. Friends, time is a funny thing. It gives and it takes away, but it only ever moves in one direction. We take a book off, we look through it, we enjoy it for a little while, but it belongs back on the shelf. It is not ours to keep. Have you seen what McDonald saw? Have you seen what the psalmist saw about the world? Have you seen that you have no real home here? None of us do. If you have seen it, then the second question I would ask you is, how do you explain it? How do you explain that this is what life in the world is like for us? Maybe you've seen it as just one of those things. It's just the way of the world. I wish it weren't this way, but it just is this way. You know, when we talked about the Genesis 3 back in the spring, the, the example I gave you was from the movie The Lion King, right? The circle of life mentality. 
You know, it, uh, it, would be, it would be great if all the gazelle didn't have to get eaten by the lions, but, you know, the, the lions got to eat. And then the lions, they die, and their bodies fertilize the grass, and the gazelle eat the grass, and so then they get to live, and their babies get to eat. It's just a circle of life. Just one of those things. But Simba knew better. Do you remember what happened when Mufasa fell off into the ravine? Spoiler alert again, sorry. When the, when the evil brother Scar throws Mufasa down into the ravine with the stampeding water buffalo or whatever they were, when Mufasa dies, Simba cries his eyes out like the rest of us. It's really, really sad. It's not supposed to be that way. He knows. He doesn't comfort himself with the fact that Mufasa's body is going to feed the, the gazelle of tomorrow. That's his dad. He wants him back. According to the Bible... It, we react that way to death because we know deep down in our si- inside of ourselves at a level we cannot escape and cannot deny it is not okay that we're trapped in time. We ought not to be trapped in time. Death is an intrusion. It isn't right. But it is just. It is just. Genesis 3 tells us what Psalm 90 here echoes, that death isn't just one of those things. It's an intervention in a beautiful world that wasn't meant to look like this. Verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger. Verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. At best, we live 70, 80 years, he says. But even those years are full of toil and trouble, and then we fly away, verse 10. And all of it is because our sins are not hidden from the God who made us, verse 8. Guys, this is a hard truth. It's one of the most difficult teachings in all the Bible. But it's also one of the most clear We exist because God made us. Our very lives are gifts of God's grace. We didn't earn them. We just received them. And he gave us these lives crowned with glory and honor. And assigned with wonderful work to do in his world. That was the message of Psalm 8. But none of us have lived our lives as if our lives come from him. We haven't lived our lives as if we belong to him as if our lives should be aimed at his agenda for us and for our world in small ways in big ways in all sorts of ways we do our own thing based on what seems best to us usually because it seems best for us in other words we all live like our lives are ours not his and when we treat our lives as our own it is a really big deal to god It registers with him. And he's not okay with it. Psalm 90, echoing Genesis 3 and really all of the Bible, sees death as the withdrawal of what we claimed as ours, but was always really his. These lives that he has given us. And that's the hard truth up under this hard truth that comes through this first contrast in Psalm 90. God is everlasting. We're passing away. And we're passing away because in a way, we ask for it. Now this sets up contrast number two. And the last few verses of this psalm. Contrast number one, the difference between God and us is meant to 
to, to propel us forward into contrast number two. What are you going to do about this? How will you respond to the way of the world, to what, to what Psalm 90 says about you, about me? These last verses of the psalm give us two ways to live. Uh, This psalm is is known as a wisdom psalm. Wisdom always focuses on how to live well in the world as it is. Not the world as we wish that it were. The world as it is in all its glory and in all its misery. And one of the most common features in the Bible's wisdom literature, in in psalms like this one and in books like Proverbs, uh, one of the main features is is that this wisdom stuff often contrasts different ways to be, different ways to, to, to live, and plays them out. What will it look like if you were to follow this way in your life in the world? What, what about if you follow that way? And that's what, the, that's what the psalmist does for us here, beginning in verse 11 and carrying through to the end of the, uh, end of the psalm. He gives us in verse 11 one verse on what not to do. That'd be way number one. And then several verses, his real f- focus is on what to do. Verses 12 to the end of the psalm. Confronted with the truth about ourselves, that we're, that we're passing away, that, that we ask for it. How should we respond? Well, don't respond with way number one. That's verse 11. That's the way of denial. Look at verse 11 with me. Who considers the power of your anger, he says, and your wrath according to the fear of you? He's just said in verse 10, look, nobody who's paying attention can deny that, that our years at best last for 70 or 80, seven or eight decades, and they're full of toil and trouble. And then we just sort of fly away. Nobody can deny that. Why are we not paying attention to it? He says in verse 11. Who considers this the power of your anger? How are we talking about anything else? Is basically what he's saying. How are we not looking through the brevity of everything and looking to you, the fear of the Lord? Basically, what the psalmist is doing, he's putting his finger on a problem that was real 3,000 years ago when he was writing and hasn't gone anywhere since then. Uh, Recently, I was reading a book, a classic book by a French writer and math whiz named Blaise Pascal. He talks a lot about this same problem as he saw it among his friends back in the upper crust of France several hundred years ago. He said, you know what? We're all stuck here living in this world as what he calls thinking reeds. That's a tough way to live. Reeds, like a, a, a blade of grass. He's probably thinking of Psalm 90 when he says that. The problem is that we are blades of grass. We're just reeds in a field waiting on the sun. But we have to think about it. We're cursed with the ability to know that about ourselves. The gazelle doesn't know that. The gazelle just eats and runs and eats and runs and eats and runs and it's over. We're stuck thinking about the fact that we're reeds. And therefore, he says, being unable to cure death, we decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. To shut down the thinking part of our life as reeds. That's basically what he says. The reason nobody was paying attention, according to Pascal, is is that we choose diversion instead, hoping to be happy. Back in his day, he was thinking about fox hunting and gambling and debutante balls and shopping and opera and whatever else the wealthy French folks were into. His book goes into a lot of that. You might think that people who were as financially secure as his pals, who had so much, might just kick back and enjoy it, enjoy what they had, you know? They didn't have to, they didn't live meal to meal, hand to mouth. They, 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 they were just, they, they, they were secure. You would think that they would have just kicked up their feet and sipped on their coffee and ate their cake or whatever and just been satisfied. 
But he said just the opposite was the fact. Everywhere he looked, everybody was doing everything they could to stay as busy as possible. He said, these people complain about how busy they are, but they love it. They want to be busy, he argued. He said, this is a quote from his book, they think they genuinely want rest when all they really want is activity. They live for the hunt, not the capture. He uses an example of a, of a gambling friend. Like, let's say this guy that, that loves to gamble, let's say I promised him that he could have the winnings for the day, everything he hoped to gain. Let's just imagine we could see into the future, we knew exactly what he's going to take home for that day, and I just give it to him right up there up the, on, on, on the front. He wakes up, I hand it to him. The only condition is you can't gamble. Would he be happy? No, he wouldn't be happy. It wasn't the winnings that he wanted. He wanted the gambling, is what Pascal said. Isn't that how it goes with us too? How many of you get, ever got to the end of a season of a show you like and just assume the season wasn't ending in a cliffhanger? You get to the end of it, call it the series finale, and thought, that, that was enough. I'm satisfied. It's over now. How many of you ever got a great shirt on a great sale and thought, yep, now my wardrobe is complete. The search is over. I found it. How many of you, how many of you ever beat the Bowser in Mario? and saved the princess, turned off the system, set down the control and said, my work here is done. She's safe now. Now you buy next year's version. So you won the national championship in NCAA 2022 on EA Sports. Well, next year you're going to want to up the level to expert and see if you can win it with Vandy instead of Georgia. You're going to always raise the stake. You want the quest. You want the hunt. You want to be distracted, Pascal said. Now, he went even further than that. And this is, this is why I'm going into all of this, all right? Here we go. His real point, and the point we need to sit with, is that happy people don't need diversion. No one wants to be distracted from their happiness. The more we crave distraction, he argued, the better chance there is that there's something in our life we can't stand to look at. The more distracted we are, the less happy we must be. He lift up the veil of diversion, that was his word for it, and what you find underneath is a gaping hole that nothing can fill. To put it into the terms of Psalm number 90, what makes the way of verse 11 foolishness is that it just can't solve the problem. Who considers the power of your anger? Why are we so distracted? It, it's not solving anything. Distraction cannot create happiness. It can only hide for time the unhappiness that stays right where it is. And that's tied back to verse 10. It's true whether we want it to be or not. I wonder, friend, I wonder, has your rest turned into diversion? There's a lot of great ways to unwind. I, I love a lot of them, probably the same ones you do. I use them a lot. But I do think it's, it's worth 
asking yourself, especially if you feel like you're just busy, busy, busy all the way to the end. Could a factor in your busyness be that there's something you're avoiding? Something you don't want to think about or take seriously? And that's a question worth asking precisely because there is a better way than the way of denial. And verses 12 to the end of the psalm lay out this way. Friends, it's beautiful. This way can change your life. I'm going to call it the way of dependence. This is where the psalmist means to carry us. All of the truth he's been dumping on us to depress us in the first big chunk of this psalm is meant to drive us not to despair, but to dependence on the Lord. You could choose to distract yourself from the truth about yourself, but that way won't work. It doesn't solve anything. It's literally a dead end. The alternative is to let the truth about yourself drive you back to God. And that's what the psalmist wants for us. And with these last few minutes, can I just walk you through prayer by prayer, verse by verse, what it looks like to follow the way of dependence when you've taken your medicine and paid close attention to the way of the world? Step one comes in verse 12. It's a prayer for honesty. He prays, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, teach me to consider the power of your anger, to consider death and how it's got a hold on me and, and where it comes from, who I am on my own. Let that drive me to the end of myself by considering literally the end of myself. That's what he's praying for. We only get a heart of wisdom when we're willing to number our days, when we can accept that we're not immortal and can't do anything to change that fact, that, that any home I try to build for myself here in this life on my terms is a home built on sand and the storm is coming. This psalmist is done with life on his terms. He's numbering his days and that puts an end to all that foolishness. He's praying that the Lord will help him to keep doing that day after day after day. That should be our prayer too. Lord, help me be honest. Help me to see what's true despite how badly I don't want to. Seeing the truth about us leads to the next prayer, verse 13, and to a problem underneath the surface of it. Verse 13's prayer is this. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Come back to us, Lord, he's praying. But do you see the problem in this? This psalmist has nowhere to turn with the truth about himself, but the one from whom in sin he turned away at the beginning. He has no alternative but to, to, to pray, return, O Lord, to the very Lord who rightly returned him to dust. Do you see what he's asking for? In verse 13, he's asking for forgiveness. He's asking for pity. He's asking for the Lord to do something about the mess he has made. How could he ask this of the God he had sinned against? Why would God answer him or us if we pray like this? And that takes us to the prayer of verse 14. The next step in this way of dependence, pray verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. The psalmist can offer up the prayer of verse 13 because he knows he prays to the God whose love is as steadfast and immovable 
as the mountains that he formed. He knows he prays to a God who doesn't change. A God who is who he is from everlasting to everlasting before we had sinned and after we had sinned. He's appealing, in other words, to the steadfast, mountain-like love of the Lord. A love that's permanent, that's secure, that's not fragile, that's not fleeting. The kind of love that would take a God like this, a God who just is. Can you see what he's doing here? One of my favorite writers on the psalm says, back at the beginning of the psalm, God's everlastingness was an antithesis to our being reeds that spring up and then fade. He was a contrast to us. Now it's not an antithesis. His being everlasting is the answer to our problem. It is the solution we can't live without. It is our only hope for a life that lasts. The God who formed the mountains is a God whose love is stronger than sin and stronger than death. It's, it's 1 John 4, 9 and 10 that we read before we celebrated communion earlier in our service. In this... The love of God, the mountain-like, steadfast love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. There it is. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. We know better than that. We haven't. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, there is no sin you have committed or will ever commit that the steadfast love of the Lord cannot forgive you of. You can turn to him today. I don't care what your story is. I don't need to know the details. You can pray, return, O Lord, have pity, and know it will be answered because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And when you then root your life in this love, you know what happens? The steadfast love of the Lord becomes the only home you have and the only home you need in a world that is ravaged by time and change. His love becomes your home. Or as the psalmist put it back in verse 1, the Lord is our dwelling place. Friends, we live here and now like Israel did back in the wilderness. As Christians, we're waiting on the Lord to return and establish the new heavens and the new earth that is our only hope. Freedom from our slavery to time. That's what we're waiting for. We don't see it yet. In the meantime, we're tempted every single day to make a home here. But if we can follow the way of dependence, we don't have to have our hearts broken over and over and over. If we can learn to, to pay attention to, the, to what's passing away and let it drive us into dependence, there's a whole other way to live in this world of change. Let, let me just illustrate it for you, okay? I wonder if you can see how useful this is. Someone has described the experience of loss for a Christian as kind of like a hammer drives you down like a nail into the board that is the love of God, just wham, further back in, further in, further in. I think that's basically what the psalmist is praying here. Teach me to number my days, wham. 
so that I can pray to you and mean it. Satisfy me with something steadfast because nothing else will do. Maybe you wake up in the morning, you take a look in the mirror and you think, you know what? That guy's body is not what it used to be. He doesn't look the same. He sure doesn't feel the same. And it doesn't all work like it used to. That day you will face any number of offers from people and companies and products and, and promises after promises to help you deny or at least hide from that truth for a little bit longer. But if you take that way of denial, you'll miss a precious opportunity. To look yourself in the mirror, to face up to the truth about it, and to say, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. You don't change like I do. Or you wake up in the morning and your phone surprises you. Sucker punches you with a picture from when your kids were a lot littler. And you're reminded again that these years are flying by and there's nothing you can do about it. Just hypothetically, that might happen to you. Wham! There's the hammer coming down on the nail that is driving you back into the steadfast love of the Lord. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. Nothing else lasts. This morning I'm feeling it because you know, as Will prayed earlier, Tim and Hannah... Beloved friends of mine worshiping with us for the last time before they moved to Ann Arbor to, 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 to take up this new and amazing opportunity the Lord has given them. Praise him for that. But it hurts. Another hammer just wham on all of us. Driving us into the steadfast love of the Lord. It always lasts. It never ends. It's new every morning. We can depend on it. And friends, these, are, these, are, these examples may not hold a candle to what you're struggling with this morning. Maybe you are expecting the death of someone you love. I know some of you are. Maybe you've experienced a traumatic breakup of a relationship that really matters to you and you can't imagine your life without it. Maybe in one way or another, your life has been rocked this week by your impermanence and the permanence of everything else you might be tempted to trust. Whatever that experience is, I want you to see it as a hammer that now drives you down deeper into the steadfast love of the Lord, leaving you with one and only prayer to pray. Satisfy me. Be my dwelling place in this world of change. Because nothing else can get the job done. And I can tell you this, friend, from the perspective of the psalm of faithful Christians who've lived before us, and even in my own little halting, stumbling life through this world of change. When you pray this prayer, he answers it. This is a prayer he always answers. So why wouldn't you want to open your mind and your heart to whatever it is that drives you back to him? Oh, Father, we pray that you would overcome the deep desire in us to look away and replace it with an openness and a wisdom that drives us back to you where alone security can be found. Satisfy us as a people, as your people, with your steadfast love. And we pray this in the name of your Son who came to us from love. Amen.